0: If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele.
1: And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we're talking once again to Dr. Brian McGowan, someone who's always up to interesting things when it comes to applying the science of learning. Before we do that, though, we'd like to ask you to do something that would really mean a lot to us, and that's to subscribe to the Leading Learning Podcast if you're getting value out of it, and also to give us a quick rating and review. You can do both of those things by going to leadinglearning.com iTunes. It would really mean a lot to us if you could just take a minute to do that sometime today. We'd also like to thank Com Partners, makers of the Elevate learning platform, for being the sponsor for this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. You can find out more about Com Partners at compartners.com. So, Selisa, I got to talk with Brian the last time around, and you had the honor this time. So, what did the two of you discuss?
0: Well, we started by talking about the learning actions model, which is a kind of a view of learning that Brian did uh, research around and really has then set out to apply. And so we talk about the origins of that, what that learning actions model looks like. And then more specifically, we get into some recent research that he's done uh, around um, learner engagement and the role that learner engagement has in educational effectiveness, kind of using that learning actions model. So as you said, he is always doing interesting things when it really comes to a a data-driven, a science-backed approach to learning, and that's what we talked about.
1: Well, I love it. He's always got his sleeves rolled up, really. He's in in the thick of things and, and, and trying it out and getting the data, like you said. So looking forward to hear what Brian has to say. So let's go ahead and roll the interview.
0: I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast, and today I'm joined by Dr. Brian McGowan, who's co-founder and chief learning officer at Archimedics, a healthcare informatics and e-learning company. He's a research scientist and educational technologist. He's designed, implemented, and evaluated a a lot of different educational interventions, and in general, he's all about thoughtful, data-driven approaches to learning. So Brian, thanks for making time for this conversation.
2: It's absolutely my pleasure, Salisa.
0: So I, I gave a little bit of a brief introduction there, but I want to give you a chance right here at the beginning to say a bit more about your background and, and your work.
2: Sure. so um, academic research scientist by training, went to Temple School of Medicine many moons ago, um, got my doctorate in cardiovascular physiology and became a faculty member. and someplace between learning how to conduct science, someone assumed that I knew how to teach in that sense. <laughs> the better part of eight or ten years as a faculty member and course director until eventually dedicating my um, research focus on education. And that was just about the turn of the century now. Um, And I've spent the better part of the last 15 years um, conducting and studying, uh, conducting experiments and studying how people learn.
0: Well, that's great, and, and I'll note that this is your second time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Um, you were gracious enough to deliver a, a content pod at our two-day uh, event in May, Learning Technology Design, and, and you were on the podcast a, a couple of months before that event to talk about data you had collected about a series of uh, experiences with flipped learning, and then you shared more about that at the Learning Technology Design event. But this time around, I, I know we want to talk some about what you found, again, in looking at data about the relationship between engagement and, and, and effectiveness in e-learning in particular. But I, I think maybe the place to start is by talking a little bit about the Learning Actions Model, because the data that, that you have ties into that. So um, what is the Learning Actions Model?
2: So the Learning Actions Model is just about to celebrate its fifth birthday uh-huh. Um, so the, the learning actions model itself started with uh, a research question about five years ago, um, which actually gave rise to Archimedics, which is the company I co-founded. But prior to Archimedics, I'd been conducting experiments and watching how people learned. I was the chairperson for a national committee on, um, uh, educational technology, and I had this gut feeling that we were missing something. And, and the more I started to talk to folks about learning theory and uh, learning science, one of the questions that I kept asking is, how how is it that we can feel comfortable assuming that learners know how to learn? Mm. <laughs> um, especially in medicine, we deal with some of the most uh, well-trained, uh, brightest minds, if you ask them, they will certainly tell you that.
0: Yeah,
2: right. Um, and and we we operate in this bubble where we we believe that there's adult learning theory and there's ideas around engagement, and that if you were to create content that's actionable and practical and personalized, and deliver it to a learner in whatever form—in a classroom or in a small group workshop or in an online setting if you were to create what adult learning theory suggests is a properly structured content piece and hand it, deliver it to the learner, even engaging them in it that the learner can then not only understand that information and consume it, but can then take the additional steps that are required to actually learn over time. Um, and if that's true, then, you know, we, we need to focus on other areas of improvement, but the more you look through the literature, the, the, you're not going to find definitive data anywhere that suggests that the process of learning has been well studied. And so I set out five years ago, interviewed hundreds of clinicians in a semi-structured approach, and it, it would go something like this. So Salisa, imagine you're sitting in a classroom, an online environment, and you're engaging with content or engaging with a facilitator, and a piece of information arises, and it's interesting to you. It's piqued your curiosity. It's created a moment of cognitive dissonance. And what do you do at that moment um, so that you can begin this process of learning? And as I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of folks, uh, a variety of very actionable, we're talking real life, tangible actions, they would describe to me. So um, uh, if I'm reading something I'll write in the margin if it's really important to me if I'm in a classroom maybe I'll write in the in a notebook if I'm in a conference setting maybe I'll jot something down on a business napkin or on the back of whatever three up uh, PowerPoint slides are given and we started to walk through that so you you take notes note taking seems to be this fundamental first step in your learning process and um, I ask a hundred people how they take notes and you'll get 150 different <laughs> answers. So, so we, we, we continue down this path and we quickly came to understand that the notes themselves, while a critical first step, are really necessary but insufficient and that the notes that an individual learner took are not nearly as valuable if the learner spends no time reflecting or re-exposing themselves to those notes. And so this idea of a reminder system or a periodic a, an individualized spaced learning component right. became critical. And everybody I interviewed had examples of great notes that they've taken, and they'd find them six months later, and they totally forgot the notebook even existed. And, right. <laughs> and so um, notes, and then this reminder system started to emerge from these conversations. and And the third element that emerged, was while they're having those moments the learners making a split second decision as to whether they know enough to understand the relevance of that nugget of information to their own practice or to their own setting and what ends up with this this kind of ebbing and flowing of questions and answers and questions and answers which the learners would relate to as the need to search for answers in real time mm. And so the learners would describe pulling out their smartphones, asking the person next to them, if the setting is conducive, maybe they raise their hand and they ask a question of the faculty. There's a variety of different ways that a learner goes through this real-time search. And, but the learners would acknowledge that while they're doing this, while they're taking notes in this cornucopia of unevolved ways – and while they're trying to set reminders by dog-earing the pages of their notebook or by writing in the margins of a journal, while they're, they're using this myriad of approaches to set reminders or, or um, bookmarks, if you will, mentally, in the notes that they're taking. And while they're confronting and trying to address all these different questions that are arising in the course of the learning process, the learner started to talk about how their attention is constantly being fragmented from what they're there to actually learn. It turns right, out these a- right. the, the actions that the learners are taking and the ways that they're taking these actions are actually distracting them. They're undermining the educational experience, not supporting the educational experience. And time after time after time in these interviews, we have these eureka moments where the learner would say, I can't believe I've been in classrooms, I've been faculty, I've been learning in, in formal settings for 30 years, and this is the first time I've ever thought about how inefficient my learning actions are.
0: Mm. No, that's uh, fascinating, because I definitely that resonates with me, that idea of there you are trying to engage, you find something that connects with the work you want to do, or the work... Um, you are doing and so you start thinking about that and you realize you've missed out on whatever's just been said in in the classroom or in the video or whatever format you're using. Yeah. So
2: so that that gets to to this fourth action. And now, now I'm connecting my personal interest in, um, I've been looking at cognitive psychology, nudge theory, and all these behavioral modifications. And, and so here I had hundreds of learners explaining to me that the behaviors that they thought were supporting their lifelong learning journeys were actually behaviors that were largely inefficient and unevolved. And, and what they realized is that they were almost dependent on a fourth natural learning action which is the idea that the faculty and the environment are critical to nudging the learners to keep their attention focused. So imagine you're writing a note and all of a sudden you look to your left and your right in the classroom and the learners on either side of you have both almost in a synchronized manner laughed or looked at the faculty member or looked up at the screen. Those environmental cues, whatever you were writing, wherever your mind was at that moment, those environmental cues are actually refocusing your attention. And what we found through these interviews is that the inefficiency in the first three actions make the fourth action um, unbelievably critical for the learner. And we've been lucky enough now to evolve those four learning actions that evolved from this research. We've been lucky enough to, um, been able to to test a lot of these initial theories, and that led to the construction of the instructional design model that we refer to as the Learning Actions Model.
0: Well, that's great. I mean, I, and I love that it starts with this really the, these interviews with learners and and hearing how they approach it, and then extrapolating to these four points that seem you know pretty universal. They certainly jive with with how I know myself to act in in an educational or a learning setting. So that's fascinating. And, and so um, I don't know if you want to say more about the, the learning actions model, but I, I know that, you know, one reason we wanted to talk is that because you have been doing um, a study around this relationship between engagement um, and uh, effectiveness. So I don't know if we want to turn there now, or if you want to say a little bit more about the model before we do that, but I am fascinated by what you've um, found out about that relationship between engagement and effectiveness.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think the only other thing I would add is that these actions that were uncovered, what we also came to learn through these interviews is that few, far fewer than 10% of all the individuals I interviewed acknowledged ever intentionally focusing um, or studying these actions as they relate to their own ability to learn. So occasionally we'd hear somebody who said that they had taken a class on, on note-taking or they had tried a few different approaches at taking notes and figured out which one worked for them. So the, the, the soundbite for the learning actions research is that almost universally, as critical as these actions are to learners, they're almost universally a matter of habit and convenience, and almost never a matter of trial and error. Mm. Which means the community of learners in, in pretty much any profession, and subsequently we've moved beyond simply studying the healthcare professions and looking at other forms of adult learning. These learners are dependent on the series of actions that after a little bit of reflection, they acknowledge they've never really evolved. Mm. And that ends up putting an obligation slash opportunity in the hands of the educator. Because now when I create content or when the groups that I'm consulting with or we're partnering with create content, the first thing that we help them understand is that Beyond simply creating the content itself, we need to apply the learning actions model so that you can enable effective note-taking, enable automatic reminder systems, enable real-time connected search, and leverage the nudge element, the fourth learning action, to keep the learner's attention consistently focused throughout the duration of whatever the education is. So we ended up with this instructional design model that puts some opportunities in the hands of the educator. What I've now, through the research, have have come to believe is an absolutely critical piece of any educational design. Um, And it marries to almost any other instructional design model that you can consider. So what we've done recently is started to study what about the learning actions model is really driving um, more effective learning, uh, more engaging learning. And so we've. if you think about the actions, note-taking, reminders, search, looking through related information in the Archimedic system, and not to in any way turn this into a specific product conversation, but within what we've done in Archimedics is we've built the system so we can track all those behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so when, when I talk about this next, more recent research questions, we're looking at how tens of thousands of learners have actively engaged in a learning experience. And when we say engaged, we mean the notes they've taken, the searches they've conducted, the reminders and priorities that they've given to those reminders, what they do with what they learn through search. There's a host of um, different events that we're able to monitor in real time as a learner's engaging with content. And so what that's given us is this data set. And we can start doing some comparative or correlative analyses between how this distinct definition of engagement um, tracks with the effectiveness of an educational experience. And so maybe we can talk about that for five or six minutes.
0: Yeah, I think that sounds great. And, and as you're going along, I would love to hear you define um, exactly kind of how you're using engagement and how you're using effectiveness in the study, so sort of how you're measuring that, which I, I know yep. you have that. So yeah, but yeah, tell us about this study.
2: So uh, engagement is, um, we have a, a calculation in the system that speaks to all the actions that a learner can take while they're engaging with content. So I think we track about 14 different actions that are all under the umbrella of notes or reminders or searches or interacting with nudges so we track this in in car, in common parlance I tend to hear educators talking about engagement almost as if it just means attendance mm. so did you engage learners yes we engaged 500 learners how did you engage them while well, they signed in or they showed up right when we talk about engagement we're specifically through the software, watching every action that learners take as they're consuming and are interacting with content
0: and and so just you know for the sake of argument it maybe you're even under reporting engagement because you're looking at engagement that actually results in an action that's trackable and then there is arguably engagement where I'm just having that aha moment where maybe I'm not actually taking a note yet but I've you, you it's something has sparked and and I am engaged so like I said potentially even you what you're counting is maybe even an underreporting. Does that um, totally
2: with you? jives? Yeah. Totally jives with my thinking. And in fact, it's it's probably underreporting in two different ways. One of them is the pure black box cognitive engagement right. that, aside from you know neurosensors, I'm not sure how we're going to get into those those cognitive engagement um, measures. The other one is while learners are in quote unquote engaging in our software. I'm not fooling myself to believe that the learners are only using our technology. They're still probably got a list of post-it notes and and uh, legal pads sitting in front of them or maybe another browser window open. So I, I would actually posit that maybe we're tracking at most 30 to 40% of the actual actions mm. that learners are taking. But when you're talking about thousands and thousands of learners, what we've seen from our data is on average... A learner is taking someplace around three to five actions in the software as they're consuming a a piece of content, maybe a 25 or 30 minute long uh, web webinar of some sort. So the average learner is taking three to five actions, but that's average. So we know that there are learners who maybe take one or two actions and we know that there's learners that are taking 15 or 20 actions in a half an hour. Right. And so the first research question that we tried to ask is if we could rank order every one of the learners based on the number of actions they took and divide those into quartiles, we would end up with a least engaged quartile, a second quartile, third quartile, and a most engaged quartile. And and we're talking about in, in the one, the research that i we shared recently over three thousand two hundred and forty learners were were included in this data set so each quartile has seven hundred to, to nine hundred learners in it
0: yeah I was noticing in the because you have this white paper out that that um, the what is it learner engagement is a key to educational effectiveness i yeah I was really impressed with the the size of that data set because then like as you're pointing out then even as you begin, Um, Subdividing and looking at those quartiles, you still have nice big groups of of learners to be looking at.
2: And so, on the effectiveness side, we can then use. um, I think for the analysis in that paper, it was uh, pre and matched pre and post tests, where the questions themselves were addressing changes in knowledge, changes in competence, or changes in performance. So we're using an immediacy measure of pre and post tests but we're exploring a couple different domains and learning in attitude change or in performance change. Great. And so we can now take the matched for 3,200 and some learners. We can take their matched pre and post, do the average change um, in pre and post scores on the tests, and then correlate that to the the different um, quartiles of learners. And what we found is that the learners in the, Least engaged quartile demonstrated about a 15 to 25 percent improvement between pre and post. The learners in the second quartile hit about 25 to 35 percent pre post. Then we got 45 to 55 percent pre post and we change. And ultimately, the most engaged learners were showing upwards of a 60 to 80 percent change in pre and post. Wow. And and so so we know, and again, validating this across multiple activities, when a learner's consuming the content, the more engaged they are, the more effective the education is. And what's what's unique there is that we're actually defining engagement in a very specific way that's built upon the learning actions model.
0: Right. That is great. And and so you know I think you, you touched on this a little bit, but you have these specific um, groups of learners that you were able to look at this over 3000 and you have these specific, um, you know, learning uh, interventions that you were looking at, but, you know, what's your take on sort of how broadly applicable these findings are, you know, can we extrapolate these kinds of of findings about, you know, the more engagement leads to more effective learning to other situations and scenarios?
2: Well, again, the, the, the question's been asked because all of this research is based in our proprietary software, and not everybody has access to it, or everybody has the resources to secure it. So, if you're thinking about a small group workshop, or a plenary session, or a simulation, or um, you know some some other cohort-based learning model, any time. The example I use all the time is think about like a case based or a simulation experiment where where the belief is because it's more immersive, because it's more practical or realistic, that the lessons that are being um, that are emerging during the experience are going to be easier to consume. They're going to stick longer. And it just seems to be like an assumption that if you put somebody in a situation where it's real life and and there's adrenaline and there's emotion and everything's tied to it, that that is is really the, that's the glue that makes everything stick. And I think what we've learned from this is in those moments, those emotional moments in a simulation center or some kind of immersive role-playing situation, those moments still need the actions to support them over time. So at that exact moment, the learner may say, wow, that's, I, I just learned something. I felt it. I learned it. It made sense to me. I'm going to apply it. And a half an hour later, they walk out of the room, and they may recall pieces of it. And three hours later, and three days later, three weeks later, so I think I think the other the other ideas of what gold standard learning looks like um, are as susceptible to the learning actions model, either supporting or undermining their success as uh, a, a sage on a stage delivering an hour long lecture.
0: Right. I mean yeah and it seems like you mentioned the the spacing of the learning and that the the those nudges to recall it being so important and, and like you're saying so whether it's even if it's designed especially well from the beginning there's still that there's got to be those nudges back those those points of recall to really make it effective um you know and and so because you we we've picked up and sort of said yeah you know beyond, um, you know, the the software that you're looking at and things like that, you know, if an organization is serious about saying, you know, let's really look at whether our learning is effective, I mean, what would you suggest as some, you know, starting uh, points for for how an organization could go about doing it, you know, perhaps not in as buttoned up a way as as you've been able to do, um, but just some beginnings of how to really look at the effectiveness of what they're offering.
2: So the first thing I would suggest is to try to map the um, the flow of any of your sessions. So if you're running classroom workshop or an online environment, any any of those kind of linear educational experiences, see if you can map where the the key elements live. Um, we all work off of learning objectives many of us focus on a series of assessment approaches to understand the impact. From your learning objectives and from your assessment approaches, you should be able to look into your content and figure out where the the highlights are. So where's the 30 second nugget that really addresses or, or frames your first learning objective? And where's the two minute nugget that's really focused on one of your assessment questions? And if you now look at your content you you almost map your content based on whether it's directly addressing your objectives or directly addressing your assessment. In essence, you've identified where the hot spots are in your content,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? And now, if you believe in anything I've discussed in the last fifteen minutes around how learners' attention ebbs and flows, then you can use those hot spots in your content to do something a little bit outside the norm. At those moments to ensure that the learner's attention isn't ebbing when it should be flowing.
0: Mm.
2: Right. So if you're giving a lecture, I think, you know, we've all seen these situations where a faculty member pounds her knuckles on the podium and says, this is the most important thing I've got to say. Right. That's the learning actions model. If you're in a small group workshop. And the learner says, so Lisa, do those three things make sense to you that we've just described? How would you go about applying them in your practice? Mm. That's the learning actions model. And so if we take those gold standard approaches in something like a small group workshop or those sporadic um, uh, experiences or sporadic behaviors of some of our best faculty there should be a way that we can systematically apply that to all of our formal all of our formal training. And, and so the learning actions research, I think uncovered why it's so critical that we think beyond simply telling a story and we try to use other devices to refocus attention or other devices to simplify the learning process. Um, And, and the learning actions model gives us a variety of, of tools um that educators can use to create the experience that they're trying to create and an absent of it erase my last five years of research <laughs> ignore everything that i have brought to the community then you're basically saying let's just assume that our learners know how to learn and as long as we know how to use articulate make some cool graphics then the learners are going to be able to not only consume that information in real time, but they're fully empowered and capable to ensure that that learning is retained over the days and weeks and months that follow. And if you're okay with that assumption, then Godspeed.
0: (laughs) Right. Excellent. No, and I think that, you know, you have the research and and others have the research to show that absolutely we are not – good judges of our own learning. We're not uh, the most efficient folks and we definitely do need help. So this is great. And thank you for sharing what you've learned. We will make sure to include a link to the the white paper um, that that you just recently released about that learner engagement being a a key to educational effectiveness. Uh, I have a couple last questions for you. You know, one is uh, a question that we ask everybody, uh, which is about your own approach to lifelong learning. And I know that because you've been on the podcast before you've been asked that question before and you talked about using nets and, and sort of uh, automated searches and filters and things to bring you content but you know I guess I'll ask are you still doing that or what else are you um, doing with your approach to your own lifelong learning at this point
2: yeah i, I, I... I like this topic. It's, this is kind of the productivity of my own lifelong learning. So how? what systems have I put in place to try to make sure that I'm not the dumbest guy in the room at any point? Uh, so I, I absolutely the, – the, the filters and the nets, the conversation that we had last time or I had with Jeff, is absolutely key to that. I think the things I would add is that once you've cast the right filters and nets, so you've made the collection of information – as efficient as possible. It's how you structure it after that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, between, um, for, I, I think you and I may have talked about this in the past. I wrote an entire book based on a hashtag that I was using as my personal learning uh, platform. So I had been collecting information for two years. And every time I found something that I thought was interesting or would support my own professional development, I would retweet it. And I would put a hashtag, social, hashtag social QI. I was doing a lot of stuff on the intersection of social learning and healthcare quality improvement. And over the years, I ended up collecting upwards of 2,000 tweets that I had earmarked with the social QI hashtag, at which point a publisher reached out to me and said, I've been watching what you're doing. Would you like to write a book about everything you've learned? That, that storage mechanism... Which is you know, now archived in the, in the, within the library, the halls of Congress, or where that's all living. That, that allowed me to pull every social QI tweet I'd ever sent, pull it into one database, and then organize it. And within a matter of 93 days, I, I had written a 105,000 word, 11 chapter book. And uh, and then flew around the world giving talks about the topic. So the filters were important, but if I didn't have a way of organizing all of that information over time, I never would have been able to put all those thoughts back together again. And in this odd edge case, I don't think some publisher would have even known what I was doing.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And then I assume too. Not only you're pulling it together, but you're probably learning some new things in those 93 days you spent writing those 11 chapters. Um,
2: right. There, there were there were things that I learned two and a half years ago, and other messages that I had shared or tweets that I had put out um, in the la- in the prior month. And until I saw them all together, some of those connections were just totally lost to me. So. Being able to re-expose myself to all of this information in one place um, systematically helped connect the dots uh, in a way I don't think ever would have happened before.
0: Well, great. And so here we are at the end of our conversation. Would you tell folks who might be interested in learning more about you and your work where they can um, look to connect with you or to find out more?
2: Sure. So um, Archimedics, A-R-C-H-E-M-E-D-X, archimedics.com is our corporate website where there's a lot more information around the learning actions research, the learning actions model. You can also access the the various white papers, but I I, I love the idea of of putting them right in the hands of your listeners by putting them in the show notes. And then as always um, on Twitter, it's uh, Brian S. McGowan. Um, And you can find me there. And I'm more than happy to talk through how the learning actions model or how this research might apply in whatever setting these different practitioners are practicing.
0: Well, great. Thanks so much for taking time today, Brian.
2: Thank you, Salisa
1: that wraps up our interview with Dr. Brian McGowan. As we're exiting, we want to be sure to mention our fall event, the Leading Learning Symposium. To get information about that, just go to symposium.leadinglearning.com. And we'd also like to thank Calm Partners again for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Find out about Calm Partners at compartners.com.
0: To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 45, and while you're there, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast, and as Jeff said at the beginning, if you're getting value out of the podcast, we'd be truly grateful if you would take some time today to subscribe.
1: And also, while you're there subscribing, make sure to leave us a quick ratings uh, or or review. Uh, You can do that in particular on iTunes by going to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes.
0: Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, just pick another social network of your preference and spread the good word.
1: So thanks again, and we'll see you the next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.